Well, my wife and I uh, just got back yesterday from our annual autumn getaway to Vermont and New Hampshire to see the color. And I reassure you, there is color up there. I know it's kind of slow down here. Um, it's been a dry season, and also there's a bug we read about that's eaten the, the maple leaves. And so there are some, some effects here so that the color is not quite as brilliant as in past years. But it was very good in the White Mountains where we were hiking. And uh, Barb and I, we got to the top of a, a little mountain. Um, didn't have time to do a big one. We sat down on the uh, rock ledge and looked down the colorful valley. And right next to us was this cute little red maple tree, maybe 10, 12 feet high. And full color, beautiful, intense red leaves. And each leaf, all the veins in the leaves were yellow, yellow strips with red. And, and the, the overall effect of the tree was just glorious. And I thought, you know, how God, through mysterious natural processes, can create such a beautiful object, just one of trillions of beautiful things in this world. And as you look at it, I could just imagine a, a painter setting up his easel and wanting to paint and create in his own way uh, his interpretation of God's creation. And, and so God has created things to evoke creativity in us. As Pat Cat, uh, Cook keeps reminding us, we're created to create. And we're going to say a few things about that as we deal with the cultural mandate this morning. Theologians have sometimes talked about two great mandates given in the Bible that more or less summarize our work here on earth as human beings. And the, uh, the first one is the creation mandate, which as we will see more recent years has been termed the cultural mandate. And it's found in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which was read. And the second is the great commission, which is found in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. The first mandate was given by God to mankind in general, and the second was given by Christ for his disciples, and therefore all, for all Christians. The first mandate is called the creation mandate because it was given by God when he created man. And uh, it is also called the cultural mandate because its implications have to do with the cultural development of, human, of the human race throughout human history. Now, a lot has been said, of course, in the church about the Great Commission, not so much about the cultural mandate, although we talk about it in academia. But I would like to focus this morning mainly on the cultural mandate, which hasn't been treated as much in the church. And the question to pursue is how the cultural mandate affects the way you live your life. So bear that question in mind as we go. Now, the term cultural mandate is actually a fairly modern term, uh, stemming back to some Dutch Calvinists in the latter 19th century. But the general idea has been an inspiration of both Christian and Jewish thinkers for 2,000 years. It has to do with the question what are the implications of Genesis 1, 26 to 28? The words of verse 28 are especially key. Having just stated in the previous verse that God made mankind as male and female, 
bearing God's image, the passage goes on to say, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now this verse has been variously interpreted by theologians. Some point to what seems to be several ordinances stated or implied, such as marriage, the family, domestication of animals, and the idea of spreading over and civilizing the whole world, which can also imply government, social organization, development of language, so forth. But I would like this morning for us to consider two aspects that I find in this ma mandate that pretty much overarch all the other ordinances, and they are science and art. And with that, I venture my own definition of the cultural mandate. As I see it, the cultural mandate refers to God's command to mankind to study the works of God's creation and to use the knowledge gained to engage in good, creative works done for the glory of God. Now, Genesis 1.28 does not ex exactly say that in so many words. But I believe it is implied when interpreted in relation to other verses in the larger context. Now, one of the key words here is the word subdue. Verse 28 says that we're not only to rule over the animals, but we're to subdue the earth, the whole earth. John Walton, in his commentary on Genesis, says that to subdue means to bring something or someone under control. Thus, he suggests we are to harness and utilize the natural resources God has placed in this world. But now, in order to do this, we have to gain knowledge of the world. If we're going to rule over the, the works of God's creation, we have to be knowledgeable <laughs> rulers. So as humans who bear God's image, we are to study the world God gave us and to learn of its nature and its order and thereby reflect in our knowledge the knowledge and wisdom of the creator. That is science. And then we're to do something constructive and creative with our knowledge as a way of reflecting in our work the creativity and the wisdom of the great creator, the great artist of the universe, our God. And that is art. As many Christian thinkers have said, when God made man in his own image, he made us to be stewards of God's household of creation, to take care of it, and to draw out its potential for works that honor and bring joy and glory to God. Now, speaking of science, I believe that we see the beginnings of science when God brought the animals to Adam to see what he, Adam, would name them. Now, in the ancient Hebrew culture, to name something or to, say, or to name someone suggests familiarity, requires familiarity, and, and authority to give significance to that which is named, like a father naming his son. So in order for Adam to name the animals, it seems to me that he would have to take some time to study them, 
seeing their individual characteristics and behaviors. One might even suggest that Adam was engaging in a little biological classification, if you please. You see, science is basically the study of some aspect of the creation to gain knowledge of it, to gain knowledge of its order and its functions. But then there's the application of science or knowledge to creative work. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Perhaps we should say that culture began with agriculture. And uh, then after Adam and Eve sinned and were driven out of the garden, we find that mankind, even in his sin, partially fulfills the cultural mandate. We read in Genesis chapter 4 of the building of a city and of the developing of instrumental music, uh, musical instruments, rather. And throughout the whole Testament, we find plenty of examples of artistic work. Consider the tapestry in the tabernacle, and later on, the grandeur and beauty of the temple. And so it continues down to today that mankind fulfills his work through science and art. In fact, I suggest that almost any constructive human endeavor can be seen to have a scientific aspect and an artistic aspect. This is certainly true in industry. Take the industry of steelmaking. The science behind it is metallurgy. When it comes to building something with steel, it may end up the superstructure of a skyscraper or a cathedral. The carpenter who builds houses relies on the science of wood frame construction. I remember when I was taking architecture 30 years, 60 years ago, yeah, 60 years ago, my late teens. Um, I had to read a book on wood frame construction which dealt with, among other things, what size studs and joists you use depending upon the stresses and the spans. But when the carpenter builds the house. He applies his craft artfully. But a carpenter doesn't, excuse me, the, those who uh, know Nick LaMonica, you don't have to be a, a house builder um, to be an artist with woodwork. Ask Nick about some of his artful woodworkings that, that excite and delight the, stu the, uh, the campers at the summer camp where he works. Um, even the electrician, I think, has a certain style of looping the wires that he connects to outlets or, or to the uh, circuit breakers. The computer programmer relies on the sciences of math and, of course, computer science. Um, but uh, he may artfully develop a special app that will be very useful for many people and many businesses. Um, I don't know whether our own Craig Tashman is here today, but ask him about his very artful development of an app called Liquid Text, which is um, a big hit in the techie world. The field of music might seem to be pure art and not science, but when a person wants to compose a piece of music, it would be good for him to have taken some courses in the science of music theory. Um, in fact, 
with all the arts, whether they be poetry, like Pat Cook's specialty, or painting, like what Maureen does here on certain Sundays on the easel, dancing or drama, whatever. There are theoretical studies that form the science behind each one of them. And so my point is that some kind of science is behind just about any constructive task or endeavor that we engage in. And we humans tend to develop a way of doing our tasks that express some measure of beauty and creativity. Though uh, I think that, that all of this is a part of the fulfillment of the cultural mandate. And I hasten to say that though sin hampered the efforts, man's fall did, into sin did not result in God's revoking this mandate. One of the scriptures that was read, the, the latter one, was from Psalm 8, where David reminds us that, in effect, God still holds us responsible for ruling over his works of creation. Now, even if you don't consider yourself to be a very artistic person, you're not very talented in some artistic thing, you probably have a certain artistic way of doing tasks of the common person, such as decorating your house, developing a flower garden, um, experimenting with spices to spice up a, a known recipe to make it even more savory. Um, some things that maybe Joe does here. Um, my wife tells me that I should sometime visit the gardens of Jillian Corfield and, uh, and um, Patty Kelvis. Uh, she says they are works of art. And, uh, and then uh, there are those beautifully decorated tasty cupcakes and other baking goods that Sue Hughes makes for so many of her church occasions. So bear in mind then that in all of these common tasks of life, we can be creative and we can offer them as acts of worship in thankfulness that God has enabled us to participate in work that brings joy to others and brings glory and honor to him. You know, even the way we speak can be an art. As the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. We can speak words that are beautiful and helpful in their intent, using our speech in a way that reflects the beauty and grace of God. It's an ideal, of course, that we don't always live up to. I mean, I, I can be just as crude and crass as the next guy, but uh, I, I think... I think we all should strive to choose our words carefully and speak kindly and beautifully with each other. Now let me say a few more things about science. And here I might get myself in trouble, but at any rate, I'm gonna say them. I, <clears throat> I have a chart to share with you, which I've developed over the years. And for those of you in the back half, it might be difficult for you to read it, but I have extra copies. I intended to bring copies of this on paper, and I, uh, in the rush of things and trying to think of everything else, I, I forgot to bring them. And so I told my wife just before the service began 
and you saw her scurry out and come back 10 minutes later, she went over to the computer in the office and went through email and brought up the, uh, the chart and printed it out and made, I don't know, a couple dozen copies. So if you, if you want one later on, why, uh, it'll be out in the hall. Now, I, I, I title this chart Revelation and Science. It's, uh, the idea is a system of levels. Well, it's basically two levels. The upper level is the infallible level, the level of revelation. And the lower level is the fallible level, the level of human interpretation. On the upper level, you have two kinds of revelation. What evangelical theology usually makes this distinction between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is a revelation from God that comes through his works of creation in their ordinary functions and processes. Psalm 19 verse 1 speaks of this kind of revelation when it says the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see, just the existence and, and ordinary functions of the heavens and the skies give us a message about God. Likewise, Romans 1.20 says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. <coughs> Excuse me. In, what, in other words, the things of this world that God created, that we can, that we can see and perceive and touch and handle and investigate, they reveal something of the qualities of the invisible God. That's general revelation. It's revelation in nature. Now, by contrast, special revelation reveals... In special revelation, God reveals himself by extraordinary means, not ordinary. Extraordinary means such as miracles, like when God miraculously revealed himself to Moses, or through inspired prophets, or through the Bible itself, which was written by inspired prophets. And then preeminently, Jesus Christ as God incarnate. Now, I have a middle... Uh, level there, where I, I give what I believe to be the purpose of each revelation, and I feel that this is very important. The purpose of general revelation is to give us a general knowledge of God, his existence and divine attributes. And also I believe that general revelation gives us knowledge of the creation, but, it, but the knowledge of the creation is specific, its laws, its order, and so forth. So you see, it is by means of the specifics of creation that we gain a general knowledge of God. I think that's the point of Romans 1.20. Now, the purpose of special revelation is to give us a more specific knowledge of God, particularly in relation to his historical purposes that he reveals. And those historical purposes are ultimately centered in Christ. You see, special revelation is a historical revelation. It comes in specific historical events, all that God did in Israel event by event, and all that God did through Christ and the apostles event by event. Whereas general revelation is not historical. 
It just is in the way it naturally is, moment by moment, day by day. As Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm 19, verse 2 continues, day after day, they, that is the heavens, pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Now notice the fallible level. The natural and social sciences investigate the specifics and lawful order of God's creation. Now many scientists don't believe in God but they still study the functions and the laws of the various aspects of our world. And then there is natural theology. That is a science that seeks to determine what we can know about God from nature alone, from the general revelation alone. Now many Christians, perhaps most Christians, believe that sin so disrupts our thinking, especially in the area of religion, that natural theology is not a very fruitful endeavor. Now, the science that studies the special revelation is called biblical theology. It especially tries to interpret the teachings of the Bible as special revelation. And it sees such special revelation as a needful correction for our misunderstanding of the general revelation. Are you following me so far? But now the important thing is to realize that all of these sciences are a fallible interpretation of a particular revelation they are studying, including the science of biblical theology. Just looking to see a reaction to that. Yet I believe that God has constructed our minds and our senses in such a way that as we diligently search for the truth, and be a check on each other in the various fields of study, we can make progress in understanding the truths of the twofold revelation. And I believe the Holy Spirit, by God's common grace, undergirds and even inspires this whole process. Just because we're finite and fallible and sinful on top of it all doesn't mean we can't know any truth. We can know enough truth in each revelation to make us responsible. And if we respond in faith, to become saved. But if we keep clear on what the purpose of each revelation is, we will be careful not to look to special revelation for knowledge of things that only come by general revelation and vice versa. We should not expect special revelation to give us the laws of physics and chemistry. That is something we can determine for ourselves based on the intelligence that God gave us in order to fulfill the cultural mandate. What special, what special revelation gives us are truths that we could not know if God didn't specially reveal them. But we must also bear in mind that these truths come in various historical contexts. And therefore, we must understand them within their context. So what can be concluded from this chart is that the controversies over Bible and science are not really controversies over Bible and science. They are rather controversies between the scientist's fallible interpretation of the general revelation and the theologian's fallible interpretation 
of the special revelation. Did you get that? Let me, that's kind of complex. Let me repeat that one. <laughs> the controversy as I see it, I'm suggesting, is really between the fallible interpretation the scientist has of the creation as general revelation and the fallible theologian's interpretation of the Bible as special revelation. So when it comes to, uh, oh, each, each science should be respected for what its purpose is. And so when it comes to understanding the specifics of the laws and order of creation, the theologians should listen to those in the natural and social sciences. They're not infallible, but he should listen to them. And when it comes to gaining a clear knowledge of God and what he has done in history and is doing in history, the scientist should listen to the theologian, who's not infallible, but he should be listened to. The mutual interchange can result in a self-correcting process by both sides and thus help us all to better fulfill both the cultural mandate and the Great Commission. Now bear in mind this chart was made up by a fallible human being <laughs> and therefore uh, you've got to test it on your own. Don't take my word for it. Well, the challenge. So what's the challenge here? How can we proceed to better fulfill the cultural mandate as well as the Great Commission? Let me suggest three things. First, let's try to be more positive and informed about science. One of the things that disturbs me is how Christianity, particularly evangelical Christianity, continues to have the reputation of being negative about science. Science is a gift from God. And it, it, much of its activity is involved in developing theories to explain things and to critique those theories and to, to replic replicate experiments that further test those theories and so forth. And even though scientific theories are rarely proved in the absolute sense, the theory that best explains the relevant data of a particular area eventually, usually, will win the consent of the scientific community, even though it may take a lot of time. It took a long time to uh, finally give in to Copernicus. Because, you see, science is a self-correcting process. But I admit that there are competing theories that are harder to win a consensus on, especially is this true in the social sciences, where different religious and philosophical views pull scientists in different directions. But my point is that there are some major theories where the evidence becomes so overwhelming in support of those theories that a consensus is finally reached. This even happens in the science of biblical theology. Notice how I'm saying biblical theology is a science. It's a study of a certain area of God's revelation. For example, the theological view that God is three persons in one divine essence won the consent of the church in the main against the view of modalism, which says that God is one person who reveals himself in three modes. And you, maybe you haven't studied enough church history to know what that debate was. But 
it turns out that Protestantism and Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy all agree as over against modalism. Why? Because a careful study of scripture showed that that idea of three persons, one divine essence, better explained all the relevant scriptures that speak on our doctrine of the Trinity. Where am I? Oh. Um, so in all areas of science, any theory that is able to explain the data of that area of science better than alternatives should at least be respected and not mocked, even if we humans are fallible, and even if the theory is never proved absolutely. Thus, my advice is that we Christians become better informed in scientific areas and stop behaving in a way that makes the world think we're anti-science. Now, I'm not gonna tell you what theories to believe and not believe. Just apply my suggestion however you see fit. Second, whatever your work is in life, whether it's in home or in the office or wherever, I encourage you to think of your work as a gift from God to be done thankfully and creatively as unto him. You can offer your work up to God as an act of worship, seeking to honor the great creator of the universe. And third and last, let us be careful and creative about our speech. Follow what Paul says to let our conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. It's good to consider this even on social media where sometimes people get in trouble by how they say things. So if we gain a more positive, informed view of science, and work on the artfulness of our work and our speech, I think the world might be more inclined to listen to us when we get an opportunity to talk about Christ. And in this way, we will better fulfill both mandates. So to summarize the point of the cultural mandate, let me refer to the key biblical truth. God wants us to use the resources he has given us to reflect his wisdom and his beauty in our work and speech. Now you'll notice that we don't have a panel discussion today. That's because I anticipated I would be long-winded. But I want to throw out a question for you to discuss with each other after the benediction or in the coffee hour. And the question is, is it on the board? Yes, the teacher put it on the board. How can or does the cultural mandate apply in your kind of work? And if you're still kind of fuzzy on what the cultural mandate is, just go back to the key biblical truth. Okay, let us pray. Dear God in heaven, we are awed at your infinite ability to create. The size of the universe, the exquisite beauty of it, of our earth, the exquisite beauty of the newborn baby. We just are in awe. And we thank you for creating us in your image and giving us the opportunity to give back to you our own finite, creative ways of demonstrating our love for you. 
And so, Lord, teach us to do this better in our work. In Christ's name, amen.